Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. If you have a, a pew Bible there, you'll find this on page 884. As you turn there, let me say, I, I trust that you got my email letting you know that Joshua Spack will be moving on to other pastures. Is Joshua in here? Yes, he is. Uh, Joshua, I wanted to let you know that I was sorry to make that announcement. Uh, we've had a really significant year with uh, navigating the speed bumps of any and, as we've said, every worship transition, but then really turned that corner and uh, enjoyed a great season of, of wonderful praise together. So sorry to see you go. Um, the SPACs will likely be moving back home to Florida, uh, where he'll pursue one of the numerous opportunities that he has, has before him, but uh, not quite yet. We've got a few more weeks to enjoy one another and be in relationship, so uh, we'll uh, certainly send you when the time comes with our affection and with our prayers. Now, though, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, as I said. We're going to read verse 32 through to the end of verse 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today... You'll be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. As we ready our hearts to hear from him, let's stand together and sing these songs of preparation. Jesus, thank you. And Rock of Ages, let's stand together and sing. Let's look to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, what a profound summary of the gospel. Nothing... In my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. And that's what we do just now, Lord. We come looking for grace. Grace from your word to our souls. Would you come, be our teacher, we pray. In Jesus' perfect and matchless name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you do have your Bible there, I'd invite you to turn back with me to the book of Luke, uh, chapter 23. Now, all week my staff have been giving me a hard time about how I say the book of Luke. Apparently there's a difference between the long vowel sound and the short vowel sound. I don't hear it, okay? And I certainly can't say it. (laughs) Um, It reminds me actually of a time when I was uh, helping... uh, 
our, our oldest daughter with her homework, and it was at that phase where she was just for the first time learning how to read. And what you were meant to do is, as the parents, I was meant to read out these words, and she was supposed to write them in the appropriate column, whether they had the long sound or the short sound. And so uh, I worked my way through the list saying spoon, room, food, uh, book, wood, hood, uh, to see that she'd written all 12 words in the same column. <laughs> yeah, I can't help for hurting sometimes. But however, however you want to say it, book, book, I can't say it, book, the book of Luke. I'm excited to dive in this morning. I'm excited to dive into this section of God's Word because this series and the story of the cross is in many ways quite quite a heavy series and quite a dark story. Reflecting where we've been so far, we thought of Jesus as that man of sorrows. A life lived in suffering from beginning to end as a mere prelude to that great suffering he would endure on the cross. Then last week, we stood at the foot of the cross and we lifted our eyes to see the charge that was written above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And we reflected upon this great injustice that Jesus would be declared innocent repeatedly again and again and again and yet then condemned as if guilty. Why? Because he's not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of another, for my crimes and for your crimes. And now, as we stand at the foot of the cross, having looked up, we now look out to see uh, where he hangs and to see uh, whom he hangs uh, beside. And here at this moment, uh, into this heaviness, into this darkness, God injects some light. Amidst the sorrow, he weaves in some joy. Amidst the the, the minor cores of this entire narrative, he injects some major notes to give us hope. And I believe this morning we're going we're gonna to focus on that thief who was saved. And next week, David will consider the thief who was lost as part of the crowds that poured derision upon Christ. This morning, though, we're going to focus on that thief who was saved. And I believe that if he came in this morning, if the Lord opened up the heavens and he marched right up the inner aisle and stood behind this pulpit, there's, there's really two things he'd want to emphasize. Two very simple things. Before we get to them, though, let's look first at the context of verse 32 through 34. It's such a great context because these verses really lay out for us how the gospel works. Really lay out for us how the gospel works. They tell us very simply that Jesus dies for sin so that we can be saved. Let's look at that. First in verse 32, we read, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Why is it that Jesus hangs between two criminals? Why does the story unfold in this way? On one hand, we could say, of course, it fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53. If you want to flick back there for a minute, you'll see that in Isaiah 53 and and verse 12, we read that as Christ hangs on the cross, he will be, verse 12, numbered with the transgressors. As he pours out his soul to death, he'll be numbered with the transgressors as he bears the sin of many. And certainly that is what Christ does as he hangs amongst the transgressors. He is fulfilling that prophecy that was spoken, again, a staggering 700 years before these events took place. 
The accuracy of this prophecy is enough to give us pause, particularly if you don't believe that this is the book that God wrote. How were these events predicted with such incredible accuracy? So we could say Jesus hangs amongst criminals because he's fulfilling a prophecy. And Okay, true, that's all well and good, but why was that prophecy made in the first place? You know, why was it foretold that events would come about in this way? And we understand, of course, that what's happening there as Jesus hangs between these criminals. It's a, it's a symbol of what he's actually doing. As he's numbered with the transgressors, it's a symbol of the fact that he is now being counted as a transgressor. That he is being treated as sinful. We think of Second Corinthians 5, that he became sin, though he knew no sin. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is being numbered with those who are evil. Calvin wrote that by hanging him in the middle, they gave him first place, as though he were the thieves' leader. Luther, who tends to be more graphic, put it even more strongly when he said, he bore the person of a sinner and of a thief, and not of one, but of all sinners and all thieves. And all the prophets saw this, that Christ has to become the greatest thief, the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer that has ever been anywhere in the world. Here he hangs, numbered amongst the transgressors, dying as sin. Why? So that we can be saved. Look at verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You understand what Christ's saying here. He's saying, God, Father, these people should go to hell for what they're doing right now. And if we leave these people in their sin, they will go to hell for the things that they have done. But let's forgive them. And I'll die right now. And I'll take that punishment upon myself so that we can forgive them. And one theologian says, God has been answering that prayer for 2,000 years. Jesus dies for our sins so that we can be saved. That's how the gospel works. In its simplest form, Jesus dies for sins so we can be saved. But now though, as I said, imagine this thief comes walking in. Comes up to the front and we say, welcome thief. We don't know his name, okay. Um, <laughs> you share with us a testimony of God's grace. You know, what, what is it that you have to say with us? And uh, we'll give you more than the standard three to five minutes, okay. Uh, what is it that you would, you would tell us this morning? I think there are two things that he would have to say. Two things that are, in a sense, a nuance to this gospel work that we've been reflecting on. First of all, I think he'd tell us, and when it comes to being a Christian, you can't be too bad. You can't be too bad to come to Jesus. You can't be too bad to be saved. See, when we see the thief, what we see is an evil man who's getting what he deserves. An evil man. Look with me at verse, uh, verse 39 here. He says, one of the criminals who hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You understand that the thief who hangs here is, is an evil, wicked man. He's not just, you know, a nice guy who made a few mistakes. 
He's a man who's lived such an evil life that he's being crucified on a cross. And he's a man who's lived such an evil life that he says by his own lips that he deserves to be crucified on a cross. You see it there. We receive this justly, the due reward for our own deeds. This is an evil, wicked man, the lowest of the low. And yet what happens? Verse 42, Jesus saves him. He says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You can't be too bad. This is the evil man in the pages of Scripture. And yet he receives salvation in Christ. People sometimes complain uh, about Christianity or even perhaps about Christians that, 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 that our faith is too exclusive. Our faith is too exclusive. And the pervasive view now is, you know, if you believe in an afterlife, that, that good people should go to heaven. Good people should go. And it doesn't matter if you're a good Christian, if you're a good Muslim, if you're a good Jew, if you're just a good person generally, then you ought to go to heaven. And of course, part of the truth is that Christianity does make some very exclusive claims. It says, yes, that in fact, there is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. No man comes to the Father except what? Through him. Make some very exclusive claims as we read the pages of the Scripture. But we also need to understand that there's a sense in which it's the most inclusive exclusivity of all. Christianity is the most inclusive of all religions. How? Well, let's turn and look for a second at the um, quote that's on the front of your worship guide there. The very first one. Do you see it there? How is Christianity inclusive? Michael Iaconelli says, The grace of God is dangerous. It's lavish, excessive, outrageous, and scandalous. God's grace is ridiculously inclusive. Apparently, God doesn't care who he loves. He's not very careful about the people he calls his friends. Or the people, McLean, he calls his church. Christianity is inclusive because Jesus will forgive anyone. And it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what tribe, what people, what nation, what language. And it doesn't matter where you live, if you're urban, suburban, rural kind of person. And it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're from the lower classes or the working classes or the middle classes or the upper classes. And it doesn't even matter to him if you're LGBTQ or straight. Jesus forgives anyone. Jesus forgives anyone and he welcomes all people to himself. And not only that, but Christianity is inclusive because he will forgive anyone for anything. Anyone for anything. Will Metzger writes, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been at the gates of hell. You can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly through Christ. One of our members here likes to say with a a smile of grace on her lips that she can still smell the singe of hell in her clothes. That's the kind of life that she's lived. She's lived a life that brought her right to the very gate. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter if you are the worst thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer that has ever been anywhere in all the world. Jesus can forgive anything. There's nothing you can do to put yourself beyond the reach of Christ's forgiveness. And that's good news. It's good news because you and I are sinful people. We sin in thought. Who, who would be comfortable for a transcript of their thoughts to be put out for public view? We sin in our words, those harsh, angry words that you may have said to perhaps even those you love the most or maybe shot off in an email. We sin in deed every time we do something we ought not to do or fail to do something that we ought to have done. You can't be too bad, and this is good news for me. And it's good news for you. See, the, the problem is, this pervasive view that good people go to heaven sounds inclusive, but it excludes me. That's all well and good for the good people, but what am I going to do and what are you going to be? You understand, don't you, right, that if good people go to heaven, you and I are going to hell. And so the word of the gospel comes that you can't be too bad. There's hope. There's hope. No matter what you've done, no matter what your past, no matter what your brokenness, and not just those acceptable sins, but those dark corners of your life that you are ashamed of, there's a sense in which Christ just isn't, he's just not that impressed with them. He's not in heaven wringing his hands saying, Oh, my plan of salvation thwarted by this latest act of folly. Right? <laughs> He's just, don't be so impressed with your sin. Be more impressed with your Savior. Be more impressed with him. You can't be too bad for this grace, for this grace. I think the second thing our thief would say if he were to have a word of testimony this morning is, on one hand, you can't be too bad, and on the other hand, it's never too late. You can't be too bad, and it's never too late. This thief comes to Jesus at the very last moment. Look at verse 42. He says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The very last opportunity he has, he is dying as he hangs there upon the cross. This is his final day. He's in his final hours. This is the very last bus home, and at this moment, he reaches out to Christ. And what happens? Verse 43, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I love this verse. I love that it starts with truly because a man who has lived such a life of sin would need some reassurance at this point. Surely after an entire life of wickedness and a life of mistakes, surely I can't be saved. And Jesus says, no, truly, verily, verily, amen and amen, I tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise. The very moment you turn to me is the very moment that you can be sure of your salvation. The very second that you realize your need is the very second that you'll be saved. And so we see that you can't be too late, that becoming a Christian isn't like you know, getting into grad school where you need an impressive GPA and some stellar references. This thief failed every single test and had nothing but detractors. Nor is becoming a Christian like a spiritual do-over where God wipes the slate clean and gives you another chance. 
Do you know what this thief would have done? Do you know what I would do if that's how it was? If God said, right, past forgiven, move on uh, and, and, and live a holy life. What would I do? What would you do? We'd do exactly the things that we've done before. We're unable to clean ourselves up. We're unable to live that kind of new holy life. If it's lived in order to appease the Lord. Christ says, no, the moment you ask for forgiveness is the moment that you'll be saved, and it's never too late. I love the story he tells. Flick back a few pages to Matthew chapter 20. You'll find this on page 825. Here, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate this point, that it's it's never too late. And he says, verse 1, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. So here we have the master of a home who uh, has some work that needs to be done in his vineyard, and he goes out and he hires some men to come and do the work for him, and he agrees the price at the start of the day, a denarius, which would have been a, a fair price for a day's labor. But then this master goes out about the third hour and sees others, verse 3, standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, so six hours later, and the ninth hour, nine hours later, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, a day's wages for one hour's work. Now when those hired first came, they thought, "Ah, we will receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity. So the last will be first, and the first last. Jesus says, if you come to me like the thief at the 11th hour, you can expect a full reward. If you come to me at the very last moment, you can expect me to welcome you and lavish you with generosity. And am I not the God of grace that can do that? Do I not have the right to bless you abundantly, to bless you lavishly, to bless you in in prodigal fashion? Of course I do, because I am the God of grace. And so, because it's of grace, because you can't be too bad, it's never too late. And perhaps you need to hear that this morning. Perhaps you feel like you've, you've not lived the most holy life, and God couldn't accept you now. Or perhaps you don't see yourself as fitting in with that kind of religious crowd. Join the club. 
but you feel like God can't accept you now. Or perhaps you've decided, maybe in the past or more recently, that Christianity's not for you, and you've sort of put your marker in the ground, and you feel like you can't really go back on that now, either with the Lord or with the friends and family that you've spoken so clearly to, the, to about. And the Lord says to you this morning, it's never too late. It's never too late. Perhaps you need to hear this, uh, not for yourself, but for a loved one. Believer in Christ, you have those loved ones that you've been praying for. Those who are near and dear to you, and you're fearful of their eternal destiny, and you're fearful of the hardness of heart that they exhibit any time spiritual things come to the fore. And we say, yes, (laughs) but how hard was this thief? How hard was his heart, and yet he was saved at the end. The book of Amos tells us that some will be saved as a burning stick snatched from the fire. Isn't that a great verse? And so we should pray and not give up. Perhaps, incidentally, you need this as a believer, not for your loved ones, but perhaps for your own walk with the Lord, for your own obedience. Remembering that it's never too late to come to him for salvation or for help with the things of this life. That marriage that you think is beyond repair, those struggles with purity that are just so messy, the way in which you've been unable to wrestle with generosity, whatever it is, it's never too late to bring these things to God either. You can't be too bad. It's never too late. John Calvin said, There is no room to doubt that Christ is prepared to admit into his kingdom all, without exception, who would apply to him. Let's take a moment in the quietness of our hearts to apply to him for ourselves, for those we love, asking that he would teach us and them that you can't be too bad and it's never too late to be blessed by the grace of Christ. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, surely we would not have made this gospel up Surely we would have made it dependent upon works, that those who are good or clean themselves up would be the ones accepted by you. And so thank you for dreaming up a salvation that we could never have dreamt, a salvation that tells us it is all of grace so that we can't be too bad and it's never too late. We lift up these truths in our own hearts now for ourselves and for those we love.